If you would today, uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 7 through 14. So Ephesians 5, uh, starting in verse 7. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. That is verses 3 and 4 of the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Right? God said, and there was. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness and we can agree with God light is good light gives us life without the light of the sun there would be no life on earth and yet some thrive in darkness and certainly if you're a Tolkien fan you would know that the orcs of Mordor hate the light they cannot stand it and today, as we continue in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, what we find is this light and dark motif. We find this metaphor of light and darkness to describe the difference between those who walk worthy of their calling in the Lord and those who are dead in their sins. And so today, I want us to see in our passage that the works that are pleasing to the Lord are not works of darkness. The works that are pleasing to the Lord are not works of darkness. And so let us go to our passage today and let us read God's word. And so this is God's word, and I pray that you take it as such. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this is God's word. So Paul's continuing to explain what he meant back in Ephesians 4, verse 1. Uh, there he writes, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He gives us another version of that in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 and walk in love. Dot dot dot. Right? Walking in love is walking worthy of the Christian's calling. It is the Christian's calling. And now what some call love is actually twisted sexual desire and that's what paul has been dealing with before our passage right he talks about this 
He's been admonishing the church about sexual immorality and impurity that is common out in the world, but should not even be named among the saints. He calls the church, he calls Christians to keep clear of such sins that are common around them. And the warnings in verses uh, 5 and 6 come to bear special importance to us as we begin to unpack our passage today. So I want to read those for us again so that we have these fresh in our mind. And I want you to hold these things in your mind as we begin to talk about our passage. The reason for that, of course, is verse 7 begins, Therefore, because what I've written is true, now do this. So verses 5 and 6, hear this, the warnings that Paul gives to us. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, verse 7, right? So let's consider first the live in light. Live in light with verses 7 through 10. Live in light. Therefore, because of the warnings in the preceding verses, therefore do not become partakers with them or partners with them. Don't be a fellow sharer with the people who are under God's wrath. Now, what's Paul getting at here? What does it mean to be a partner with them? What does it mean to be a partaker with them? And it may be easier to answer this question by asking kind of the negative version for this. What does Paul not mean by this? Well, Paul's not talking about casual affiliation here. Right, this word partner or partaker, this isn't a casual affiliation. This is not being an acquaintance with someone. What we're talking about with being a partner is more than just knowing some details about a person's life. It's about being invested in them. It's about being intertwined, entangled with them. The classic verse, uh, the classic text on this issue, right, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And Paul continues. I'd encourage you to go read through that passage. It'll help you understand this more fully here. But right, this is the classic text on this, right? Don't be unequally yoked. And Paul asks a set of rhetorical questions here, right? He's what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or we might say righteousness with unrighteousness. Well, right there in the two words, right, we see that they're opposed to each other. They're opposites of each other. They can't partner with one another. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
Do light and darkness hang, hang around with each other? Do they share dinner with one another? No, it's an impossibility, right? Because where light is, there is no darkness. And where darkness is, there is no light. And then he continues, he says, What accord has Christ with Belial? And Belial here seems to be a personified way of speaking of wickedness. Now, who is a person of wickedness in the world? The evil one, Satan, right? What partnership, what partaking together does Jesus the Christ have with Satan? The answer is obvious, none, right? None, nothing, they can't. And then he ends uh, with this other question, right? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What is the end, aim, and goal of a believer? And what is the end, aim, and goal of an unbeliever? They're opposed. They're separate. They have different aims, goals, purposes, and ends. How can a believer then be yoked be joined with, partner with, be a partaker with an unbeliever. He cannot. They are opposed. Indeed, what's the end of the sons of disobedience? Go back to Ephesians 5. What, where, where do the sons of disobedience end up? Verse 5. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6. The wrath of God comes upon them. And what's the end for the believer? The glories of heaven. Right, we could go back to Ephesians 2 and see this wonderful reality, right? Verse 6, Ephesians 2, 6. And raised us up with him, that's with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The end for the believer is the eternal glories of heaven. Again, so just to underscore this, different aims, different goals, different purposes, different ends. And so what does this mean for us in Ephesians 5, 7? Therefore, do not become partners with them. Well, an easy example first, and we take what we read in 2 Corinthians, right? Don't be un, uh, unequally yoked. And we know that in part, if, you, if we've been around in church long enough, we may have heard this in regard to marriage. And that's one of the meanings of this. A believer should not, should not be married to an unbeliever. If you are dating someone and they are not a believer and you are, you need to stop. Now, I know we don't like to hear that. In our culture, we especially don't like to hear that because in our culture, what? Love and what I love, I love, and that's all that matters, and I don't care if anyone else thinks differently about it, right? That's what do we see in TV shows and in movies 
in the stories of our culture. I love this person, and even though they're not good for me, even though everyone around me says that they're not good for me, I'm going to love them anyways. Because the heart wants what the heart wants, and I want what my heart wants. Right? That's the, that's the narrative of our culture. But you can't be partnered. You can't buy into that as a believer. You can't be partnered with an unbeliever in marriage. Why? Because there are very many serious consequences for doing so. There are very many serious consequences for doing so. The unbeliever in a marriage will worship and praise something other than God. And you may say, well, they don't worship and praise anything. They don't go out and bow down to idols or anything like that. They're, they're not building statues that they're praising and worshiping. But understand, it doesn't have to be an idol for it to be worshipped. We can worship many things. And maybe that unbeliever, maybe in the marriage, they're worshiping the idea of a perfect American family. And maybe that's what they're worshiping. And maybe that's what they're holding to. And maybe that's what they want. Right? They hear the dreams of a house and two cars and a white picket fence. And if you don't deliver on that believer, so let's take this into uh, what this might look like. Husband, your wife wants that. And husband, if you don't believe that you should compromise your ethics in order to get the promotion at work that will buy you the capital so you could buy that house and give that for what your wife wants, then she's going to say you've been a bad husband. Or what's more likely to happen is you're going to start buying into the thing that she's worshiping. And you're going to say, you know what? What God must want for me is a house and two cars and a white picket fence. You can't be unequally yoked with them because you will follow after and worship their gods. And listen, that's just not me saying that you're an exception, right? So don't listen to, don't hear that. You're not an exception to this. This is the reality. Look in the scriptures and see time and again how those who have compromised on this matter have suffered greatly for it. We could, for instance, look at one of the greatest examples of this in King Solomon. Go and study the end of King Solomon's life. Because here was the wisest man on earth, and yet he did not heed the words of God. And at the end of his life, what is he doing? He's building high places. He's building altars. He's building idols for the worship of false gods. And why does he do this? Because he's allowed ideas of marriage, of being unequally yoked, of going outside of the kingdom of God to find a wife or to increase peace or whatever, whatever excuse and justification he gave it at the time. Right? He married this tribesman, this king's daughter, so that way they could have peace between the two kingdoms. But what he ends up doing is worshiping false gods, and he is not commended for that. And actually, it results in the destruction of the kingdom of Israel. 
The kingdom of Israel will be torn in two. And then Israel is going to be carried off into captivity. And then Judah is going to be carried off into captivity. And there's a root there in Solomon's sin of failing to understand and believe what God has said. Again, our culture may not like to hear this. Who is God to say, I can't marry the person that I choose to love? And let me tell you the answer to that question. God is. God is the person. He's the ultimate authority. He knows what is for our good, even when we don't know it or believe it to be good. So that's an easy example. But what else might we say Paul is meaning here by, therefore, do not become partners with them? Well, what about our friendships? All right, what, what about our closest friendships? If your deepest and closest friendships are with unbelievers, you are putting yourself into a very difficult position because, again, their aims and goals in life are going to be very different from what God says your aim and goal in life should be. And they're going to give you encouragement and advice that does not align with the scriptures. All right, we shouldn't be surprised when someone who does not believe in the Bible gives us advice that doesn't align with the Bible, right? We shouldn't be surprised by that. And if our closest and deepest friendships, those who speak and have the most influence in our life, are unbelievers, we're setting up ourselves for dangerous failure. And again, just as maybe a, an aside to that, we might go look at uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and how he listens to his young knuckleheaded friends. And so God's purpose and plan is uh, put forth. But am I saying then that you can't have any friendships with unbelievers? No, I'm not saying that. Indeed, friendship can be the grounds for showing them Christ and having opportunity to preach Christ to them. So I'm not saying don't make friends with unbelievers. Uh, I'm not saying that you need to remove yourself from the world. Right? Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I, don't, I, ne I never said when I wrote to you that have nothing to do with the sexually immoral of this world because then you'd have to go out of the world. But he clarifies his point there. Don't have uh, fellowship with someone who's in the church who calls himself a Christian who is these things. But anyway, so, but consider that your closest and deepest friendships shouldn't be partnerships with unbelievers, right? They're, don't partake with them in that. We could also consider this in the context of business relationships, right? We cannot exit this world and never do business with unbelievers. It's not going to happen. But if we partner with them, right, if, if they're part of what is driving the force of our business, guess what's going to happen? We shouldn't be surprised when we run into ethical problems that they want to do the unethical thing. And there are occasions where, depending on the structure of the business, right? I'm not going to get into all that, but depending on the structure of the business, they can lead a company in unethical ways 
And you as a Christian just have to sit back and say, I, I can't do anything about this. I don't have the authority. I don't have the power. I don't have the shares. I don't, whatever it may be. What is right and true and good for a business can be very differently defined depending on if one is a believer or an unbeliever. And by the way, again, we could look at the examples in our world and see how, for instance, there's a large social media site that I think the founders of are quite sad as to the current state of it because they don't have authority to speak into it and someone else does and they think they're driving it into the ground. I have no doubt about that. And what's Paul's reasoning for this, right? So look at verse 8. Therefore, so verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. Verse 8, for because at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Right, so the reason is not just because, right, the therefore, it's not just because that those outside of Christ, outside of his kingdom, are under the wrath of God. It's not just that. But he gives us further reasoning here that the reason we don't become partners with them is because we were darkness, but now we are light. The same thing we saw in chapter 2. Right, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive in Christ. Paul continues and reminds us here that we are not who we were anymore. We are not of the darkness anymore. And he continues to point us back again and again and again to this reality that if we are in Christ, we are changed. God has changed you, beloved. A fundamental change has taken place in your character, in your heart, in your soul. You once were darkness. You once participated in works of darkness, but now you are light. What is Paul drawing our attention to here? God's love has transformed us. And we want to love God in return. Believer, that's the reality for you. God's love has transformed you. And when you realize the nature, the extent, the expanse of the love of God, you want to love him in return. And part of loving God is obedience to what he says. And we realize that that's true even in human relationships, right? If we say we love our spouse, but never listen to anything they say to us, let me go ahead and tell you what your spouse is going to say. He doesn't love me. She doesn't love me. She never listens to me. But as God's love has transformed us, we want to be obedient to his commands, we want to emulate our good and gracious Father. We once were walking in darkness, but now we are walking in lights. And again, in this we could ask, who is the light? Who is it we're emulating? John eight twelve. John eight twelve. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To understand who Jesus is, to believe in him, for him to be our Lord, that must mean we walk in the light because he is in the light. And so Paul says here and at the end of verse 8, walk as children of light. And again, this word walk here means live. Live as children of light. Live in light. And what does that look like? Verse 9 tells us, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Or the fruit of the light is goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, a comment here on the King James Version, because if you're looking at that, you'll see it says, uh, for the fruit of the Spirit, dot, dot, dot. Uh, but many other Greek manuscripts actually have this word light, so which is original, probably the word light. It's likely that that, that word spirit, which is very different in the Greek than the word light, uh, although they both start with the same letter, uh, pneumatos versus photos, <clears throat> That, that it's likely that, the, that a scribe probably said the fruit of the Spirit, because why? Galatians, right? For the fruit of the Spirit. And that was probably what was in their mind as they began writing this down. But it seems more likely that light is the word here. It's less likely that a copyist would have substituted the word light for the, for the word Spirit. And again, that's just because uh, when we talk about God, that's more important, right? Then we talk about just light. So it's unlikely that they would have uh, substituted the word light for spirit. It's more likely that they would have substituted the word spirit for light, just to say that more clearly. But either way, the result is the same. And guess what? We consider the, the both are the same, right? What is the fruit of light? We could call it, it's the fruit of the spirit, right? The fruit of the spirit is what? The fruit of light. Because they both result in that which is goodness and righteousness and truth. So, we might ask though, why moral good acts? Why, why is it that we walk? Why do we live? Why do we strive for? Why do we live out goodness and righteousness and truth? Why these things? Well, they seem to be a summary of all that it entails in the Christian life. And here's the reality. It's because God has changed us. We're not trying to earn our salvation. What Paul is not describing here is you get on the hamster wheel of salvation and you better do good and strive and struggle. Uh, otherwise, if you fail, you go to hell. No, it's the reality of the grace of God at work in us because God has changed us. So now we live differently, right? We don't live differently in order for God to change us to say it another way. We don't do good works in order to earn our salvation, but rather because we have been saved, we do good works. 
We can look at Ephesians 2.10 here. We consider anew how God has created us in Christ for good works. God has purpose for our new birth in Christ. He's created us for something, and that something is good works. He's created us to bear fruit. We are to be fruitful. Beloved, you are to be fruitful. You are to bear fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And we see the reality of that right next in verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Right? Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Or try to prove what is. Or try, try to learn. Right? To what end? What goal are we reaching for as in the Christian life? Pleasing the Lord. That's our goal. That's our aim. That's our purpose. By the way, this might sound familiar to us from Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? Discern the will of God. Discern what is pleasing to him. Discover what God wants. Now we have to ask the question, can we know the will of God? Yes, we can. We sometimes make knowing the will of God out to be some of this mysterious thing that we can't actually really know. That it, right? It's like this esoteric, it's out there knowledge. We start maybe by reading tea leaves or chicken bones. Or maybe we ask God to knock twice if the answer is yes. Or maybe we just lay out our fleece in the morning to see if the dew is on it and not on the grass. Now let me say this, it can take work to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And notice that here, right? Because here in Ephesians it says, try to discern, try to prove. That sounds like work. Because it takes picking up our Bibles and studying them. It takes learning the scriptures. It takes prayer. Now, I'll ask the question, is prayer work? Does it take work to pray? And the answer is yes. It's not because God has intended it to be that way, but it's because we live in bodies of sin. How many times do you go to pray and you're distracted by everything else under the sun? You hear the, the uh, air conditioning rattle. You remember that you left your cup on the coffee table and you didn't put a coaster under it this time and it might leave a ring on the table. Maybe you should get up and take care of that before you finish praying. Or maybe you remember, you start to think about, you go to pray, you say, God, I'm here to pray, I'm here to, to entreat you. Oh yeah, what did I have to do yesterday? I need to run by the store and make sure that I get... Right? Does it take work to pray? Yes, it takes work to focus us. It takes work to struggle in prayer before God. Um... Here, the image of what happens to Israel comes to mind. 
when he struggles with the messenger of the Lord and his hip is put out of joint. He struggles all night. He fights all night. And when the man of the Lord says, let me go, it's morning, it's time to go. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I think there's something there in us for struggling with the Lord. So if we're more honest with ourselves, it's not that we cannot know the will of God. It's just that we don't want to take the effort to know it. And indeed, maybe we don't want to take the effort to know it because we might find that it doesn't align with what we want. And so that would really right, torpedo our plans. So we don't want to see what the Bible says about our situation. We just want to trust our gut. We want to continue forward. And if it's the wrong way, God will surely stop us. Let's not worry about asking beforehand. Let's just go and do, and God will stop us if it's the wrong thing to do. By the way, go read through the book of Genesis. Go read through the book of First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings, and you'll see men uh, who should know better do that same exact thing and end up in trouble every time. That's not the way. I think of Abraham. Uh, twice he does this with his wife where they're in a foreign land and he's like uh, wife say to everyone that you're my sister not my wife why does he do that because he wants to make sure he's not killed so that you know Sarah's a widow and then she can be remarried no he, he doesn't seek the Lord's grace there he, he doesn't say God is this a plan that you want me to do he just does it. He trusts his instincts and gets him in trouble. Uh, save the mercy of God to save those men who take Sarah uh, and stops them from committing sin, committing adultery with her. Uh, God is merciful and gracious, but don't let but let us not presume upon that mercy and grace in our situations. So it takes work. It takes work to. To, to seek God. It takes work to know what God desires, not because God is unclear, but because we still inhabit a world of sin and bodies of sin. But Paul is writing clearly to us here, even if he's using a metaphor, right? The works that are pleasing to the Lord are not works of darkness. They're not works that this world does. If we want to know what is not pleasing to the Lord, we really need only look around us in our community and in our country and our world, and we will be quick to see things that God abhors and hates. Instead, we are to live in light. And next, I want us to see expose with light in verses 11 through 14. Expose with light. Paul continues. Take no part. Right Again, he's reiterating, don't be partners with them. And now he is saying, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Light begets light. Darkness begets darkness. Light brings forth fruit. Darkness brings forth rottenness. Paul writes, expose them. And that's probably the better translation of the word there. 
uh, depending on your translation of Bible, you might see something like reprove or rebuke, which has like a verbal component to it. And I don't think Paul here is talking about a verbal component. Uh, and we'll get into more what he means. And indeed, it's not about verbally calling them out because look at the next verse, verse 12. He writes, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. It's a shame, it's shameful to even speak about those secret deeds of darkness. So if we're not speaking about them, how are we exposing them? By the works of light. What Paul is saying here is that our lives should be so lived. So brothers and sisters in Christ, this is for you. If you're a Christian, listen closely here. Your life should be lived in such a way that it contrasts sharply with the world around you. And that's how you expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. It should be apparent and evident that the deeds of darkness are just that. It should be convicting and convincing. That is your life should be convicting and convincing to those who are not of the light. They should be able to say, something is different about you. What is it? Why don't you take part in the things that we take part in? Why don't you speak the same kind of language, filthy, joking, crude jesting, right? To go back earlier in Ephesians 5. Why don't you take part in those things? <clears throat> because the light exposes the truth. Matthew 5:16 Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Matthew 5:16, in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right there Jesus is giving another way that the light exposes, right? It exposes the glory of God. You should live your life in such a way, Christian, that people see you. By the way, here, here's for, uh, from Peter's letters, right? And they should ask, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? You know what's interesting about that, and I've heard that section preached many a time, is that it kind of always seems like... Uh, a command to us to go and tell others about how and why uh, we live for Christ. I'm going to give a defense for Christ. But what's interesting about that, it's a little bit more passive than that. It's they're going to ask you, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? They're going to see something different in you and ask the reason. Now, let me say, are we called and commanded to go and to preach the gospel? Yes, absolutely. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in that passage there, it seems more that there should be a reason why people come and ask us and say, what is it with you? Why are you living that way? And then we have a reason to give a defense because Christ. So Paul is writing here. He says, but when, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, right? That, that's, that's the reality. So what's the scope here of, uh, of what Paul has in view? All right, let's remember the parties here. 
Who is Paul writing to? Christians, right? He's writing to the church. Who are those who have fellowship with darkness? Believers or unbelievers? Well, unbelievers, right? So we're not talking about church discipline here. Right? I just want to say that as a, as a difference, right? It's shameful to even speak. We expose uh, the deeds of darkness by the light of our works. We're not talking about believers who are in sin. We're talking about unbelievers. So Paul is not saying here we don't reprove or rebuke a Christian who is in sin. And indeed, if he was telling us that here, he'd be contradicting himself. Uh, when we went through together not so long back, the book of Titus, we saw very strong words from Paul that said, rebuke, reprove. When they start speaking falsely, stop them and correct them. So it's not what Paul has in view here. What Paul has in view here is that in the world around them, they are to live in such a way that they are distinct, that they're different. And that their good works, works of goodness and righteousness and truth, expose, reveal the unfruitfulness of the works of darkness, of the sons of disobedience. Paul's writing to the Ephesians about not having fellowship with the deeds of darkness that are so shameful that they shouldn't even be spoken about. Right, And again, that brings to my mind 1 Corinthians 5 and the sin within the Corinthian church, whereby Paul says, you approve and allow in your midst such sin that not even the pagans approve of. And you're proud. Way to go. I'm glad you're accepting and affirming of such sin. So it's not that we don't talk about sin issues. What Paul is not telling us here is don't talk about sin issues. He is not saying we don't address problems with one another. And it's not that the church should say nothing about sin. But there is a reality that there are some things better left unsaid. We don't need to get into the grimy details of another person's sin. We don't need to understand how they were specifically, vividly, graphically, sexually immoral or sexually impure, for instance. But we name it generally. Sexual immorality. We don't need to go into all the details of uh, the specifics of what that means in a sense in a person's life. Because there's a way that we can talk about sin even within the church that rises to the level of gossip or salacious gossip. And there's a level of detail we don't need to get into. So for instance, what does this mean for you practically? Practically, it looks like this. When you confess your sin, sometimes it's good to go to another brother or sister in Christ. If you're a brother to a brother, if you're a sister to a sister in Christ and confess your sin to them. Of course, first and foremost, we have to confess our sin to God because he's the one who uh, gives us forgiveness. But when we're struggling with sin, sometimes we need somebody else who can come alongside us and encourage us, correct us, pray for us, pray with us. But there's a level of detail in your confession of your sin that you can have before God that you should not have with another person. Why do I say that? 
because you can begin to implant in their mind evil deeds that they would have never otherwise considered. So that's why it's unhelpful. That's why it's shameful to even speak about the things done in secret. Deeds of darkness done in secret. And again, all this is not to say that we don't deal with sin or that we keep silent on the issues of sin. Paul is not silent on the issues of sin. Read this chapter. Right? Paul says clearly, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul deals with sin. He calls us away from it. So it's not that we don't speak it, but let's not rehearse it and let's not celebrate deeds of darkness by reveling in their telling. Let me say that again. Let's not rehearse or celebrate deeds of darkness by reveling in their telling. And by the way, that means uh, if we're the one telling it, we can revel in that we get to share this juicy bit of gossip. We can take delight in that and we shouldn't. And also in our hearing and our listening. Sometimes we just need to say to one another, you need to stop speaking right now. Just shut up. Because what you're saying is evil. Uh, I think I've shared with some of you before how this has happened. I've, I've been a part of this, uh, sitting, sitting around with a group of friends talking and uh, feeling in my spirit that it is gossip. We are gossiping. And being the one to say, uh, we really shouldn't be talking anymore about this. And if you want to make a conversation turn real awkward real quick, try that. Uh, that's a pro tip. Um, and I don't say that, by the way, to, to say, laud me, look at me, because I was there taking part in the sin. I was there. But sometimes we need to have the presence of mind and the strength of spirit to stand and say, we can't. This is not appropriate. Stop it. Again, it may make things awkward, but Better to feel awkward than to bear the wrath of God, right? Verse 13 continues, But when anything is exposed to light, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, right? Things exposed by the light become seen or known. And again, uh, brothers and sisters, your lives should be lived in such a way, in such fruitful light, that the fallenness and emptiness of this world is apparent. If you are in Christ Jesus, you should be living in such a way that highlights the vanity of the world around you. People should look on you and give glory to your Father in heaven. And then continuing verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. I'll just pause here for a moment and say, depending on your translation, you may notice that verses 13 and 14 in the ESV don't align with your translation. And there just seems to be a difference in where they break this verse. Uh, and I just would say here that Jack, Jack's comment is helpful, that verses are man-made structures, and so they change depending on uh, who is translating, who's interpreting, and all this. Um, we, we saw that a little bit in the book of Hosea too, right? Um, so just to highlight that, right, Paul didn't write down a little number 13 right out of thought and then write a little number 14. He just wrote but the force of what Paul is saying here, that this for anything that becomes visible is light, this is kind of a, a strange way to talk, but it seems to be something like this. 
light is transformative. Light is transformative. It takes the dark and it makes it light. That which light has shone upon is now light. In the latter part of this verse, where it says, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, helps to, I think, explain this better. Uh, first to note, though, when Paul writes, therefore it says, we don't actually find a verse in the Old Testament that says exactly this. Uh, there's no such one quote. It's probable or it seems that it's taken from Isaiah 29.1 and Isaiah 61. So Isaiah chapter 29 and Isaiah 60, that Paul's kind of combining some, some thoughts together here and giving that to us. And I would just say, again, our standards of what we consider a quote is not the same as what Paul's standards of what quoting would be. Uh, why do I say that? Because they, he didn't have page numbers. Uh, they had scrolls, right? Uh, in this time and after the apostles, you start to have something that resembles a book. But typically it was on scrolls. The Old Testament was written in a scroll. Isaiah is a big book. There might be more than one scroll. So you might say the first scroll of Isaiah. Right? But they don't have the same standards of quoting. I just say that so we understand what's going on here. But notice what Paul is conveying here, right, in verse 14. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What Paul is conveying is that if you are in Christ, Christ has shined on you. And what? To what end? For anything that becomes visible is light. But when the light, anything, verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that it becomes visible is light. That when Christ shines on you, what happens? You become light. You, you shine. You're taken out of deep darkness and into his marvelous light. Right? We rose up. We rose into life. Right? Awake, O sleeper. Who's the sleeper? The one who is dead. That's why he continues. Arise from the dead. Because Christ has shined, he has shone on you. This is the miracle of God's work in us. He takes a people who are dead in darkness and raises them to light. So the works that are pleasing to the Lord are not deeds of darkness. That's what we have to walk away from this passage understanding, right? And what is pleasing are works of light. Why? Because God is light, First John. Christ has shown in our hearts. He's raised us up out of darkness. The light of the world has spoken and brought us out from unfruitful works. If indeed we are in Christ. And so brothers and sisters, what this means for you is that is, it's evident here, right? It's manifest. You can't be partners with darkness. You cannot covenant together with them and partner with them. You, you cannot live the same way the unbelievers do. You are called to live out the light of God. Not the dark deeds of this world, which we should even feel shame to talk about. In Christian, you expose the deeds of darkness by how you live, not by describing and decrying them. But by being fruitful by walking in the Spirit, by producing the fruit of the Spirit, 
That does more to show the vanity of this world than many words. By the way, I'm not saying don't have words. You should have words. It's both, both and. But Paul's emphasizing the reality of our deeds here. It doesn't mean that we, have, that we are silent about sin. By the way, the church has erred in the past by being silent about sin. We're bearing the fruit of that today in the, in the American church. Uh, how, many, how many ministries, how many lives have been destroyed by being silent about sin? By refusing to call out sexual abuse as sexual abuse, for instance. But the church has also erred by lambasting sinners and then going and doing the same thing that they're doing. Hypocrisy is a real problem. Hypocrisy is a real problem. So when we do speak about sin, let's make sure we're avoiding gossip. Let's avoid salacious details. Let's label it without describing it. One intersection, by the way, for this, as I think is interesting, how does this bear out in real life, is a Christian journalist must walk a careful line of reporting the news without speaking of shameful deeds done in secret. Again, we could look at news websites that fail to do this, but we could also look at positive examples. I'll give you one positive example here. Albert Moeller, not too long ago, wrote a, uh, an article involving an institution uh, related to or named after Alfred Kinsey, who is a sex researcher. If you don't know that name, don't go look up about that name. It's not worth it. He's not worth the time. But it does, what he has researched has, or what he has posited and reported, uh, does impact uh, the world today and our culture. Uh, but at any rate, Mueller's writing this article about them. And in this article, one of the things that he repeats a couple of times, at least, uh, to my memory, is that he says, there's, some, there's like so many other deeds of the details of what this man has done that I can't even write about. It's shameful to even speak about the things, not even done in secret in this case, because this man reported it. He, he wrote down all of these salacious details of his immorality. It was unfit for description. And by the way, that should be our cue that maybe we shouldn't be naming an educational institution after him if it's shameful to even think about or speak about the things that he has done. So let's expose the rotten fruit of this world and its system by living out the light of Christ. Let's discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let us walk worthy of our calling. Let's walk in love. And by the way, if all this is true for the individual Christian, it's certainly true for the church gathered. We have to collectively strive to be light in the darkness. We ought to be distinct as a church body from the Satan-following world around us. And if we're not, we need to pump the brakes and correct. All this, by the way, again, not that we can earn our salvation. We live in the light not because it buys favor with God, but rather because God has been gracious towards us, because of the great love with which he has loved us, 
We love him in return. We emulate the light because God is light and we love the light. Understand this well, beloved. God's love should motivate you to love him. His life should motivate your life. His ways should become your ways. As he is holy, you also be holy. Because God has saved you out of darkness. So live like it. And some of you really need to consider this passage more closely because uh, you have partnered with darkness. You have no fruit of light, and yet you call yourself a Christian. How can this be? Well, if your life is marked by the unfruitfulness of darkness, a partnership with those who are under the wrath of God, then you really have to ask the question, what are you believing in? Because Christ speaks clearly, John 15, 2, he tells us that the heavenly father who is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And he goes on in that chapter to say, and every branch that does not abide in me, he takes away and he throws in the fire. If you are not bearing fruit, God will take you and throw you in the fire. Let me speak more plainly. Unfaithful living leads to hell. That's what the scriptures tells us. So repent of your unfruitful ways. Trust in Christ. Abide in Christ. Fruit. The fruit of light is in some way natural. It's supernatural in the Christian life. There should be fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, if you walk in the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, you will be fruitful. You can't be otherwise. So repent of your unfruitful ways. Ask God to forgive you for living in darkness. Trust Christ. Learn from him. Learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. Go read John's gospel and learn of the love of God. Some of you, though, are in darkness and you know it and you won't deny it and you you have no qualms about saying, I don't care about Christ. Understand that the warnings that we opened up earlier from chapter 5 bear on you. You are outside of the kingdom of Christ and God, and you will bear his wrath, his anger for all eternity. Your sin, the evil that you think and say and do, condemns you before a holy God. You are in darkness but a great light has shone into the darkness. So turn to Jesus. Let him shine upon you. Arise from your death sleep and trust in the Lord. Call out to him. Ask him. Plead with him. Ask for his mercy. Because there is mercy with the Lord. Jesus bore God's wrath for his people's disobedience. The Father gave his Son that he might redeem a people for his own name. And if you trust in Christ, that's you. He did that for you. You can be forgiven of your sin and live in the light of his glory for all eternity. So repent. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. Trust in him and be saved. And then walk in light. Right? Don't dwell in the darkness any longer. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we praise you for you are good and right and true.
And Father, we pray, we who name the name of Christ, we who, we who have pleaded for your mercy, Lord, we pray that we would live in the light. But Father God, forgive us for partnering with darkness. Forgive us for running back to unfruitful deeds of darkness. Forgive us for failing to live as we ought before you. God, we ask for your mercy. We beg for your grace. We are thankful that you give it richly. Lord, help us in this day before us and in this week ahead. Live in light. Bear fruit of light. Oh, Father, put it within us your love, that we would love you in such a way that others may ask, what is the reason for the hope that is within us? For Father, we want to honor you and praise you and bring you glory and worship you. And Father, we pray for those that don't want that. Father, those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Father God, we pray that you would make them alive. Father, that they would trust in Christ and walk in the truth and in light. Father, that you would expose for them, open their eyes to see the vanity of this world and its systems. Oh Lord, that they would honor you, believe in you, trust in you, hope in you, pray to you. And Father, let us who we who have, who've Christ has shined upon, be bold to call unto others, to believe in the light, and to trust he who is the light of the world. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to remember it, to believe it, and to put all that you have called us to into action. In Christ's name, amen.